Send your spirit into our lives with the power of mind and wisdom, by the flame of your wisdom, open our eyes and our minds. Listen our tongues to sing your praise and words beyond the power of speech. Without your spirit, we can then raise our voices in words of peace or announce the truth that Jesus is Lord. Let us raise with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever.
I promise that the soul that will venerate this image will not perish. And our Lord made St. Faustina the modern apostle of divine mercy. His message to her is his message to all of us and to the whole world. And yet even now, as I travel around the country, I find that there are so many among practicing Catholics who still don't know it and have never heard it before. And this being the Jubilee of Mercy, I've got to speak about it tonight. I want to summarize our Lord's words to St. Faustina here briefly. I want to quote this to you exactly word for word. To St. Faustina, Jesus said this, My daughter, tell the whole world about my inconceivable mercy. I desire that the peace of mercy be refuge and shelter for all souls, and especially for poor sinners. On that day, the very depths of my tender mercy are open. I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the thought of my mercy. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishments. On that day, all the divine floodgates through which grace flows are opened. Let no soul fear to draw near to me, even though sins be as scarlet. My mercy is so great, no mind, be it of man or of angel, will be able to fathom it throughout all eternity. Write down at once what you mean. You will prepare the world for my final coming. I am sending you with my mercy to the people of the whole world. I do not want to punish suffering mankind, but I desire to heal it, pressing it to my merciful heart. I use punishments when they themselves force me to do so. My man is reluctant to take hold of the sword of justice. Before the day of justice, I am sending the day of mercy. Write this. Before I come as the just judge, I am coming first as the king of mercy. My heart overflows with great mercy for souls, and especially for poor sinners. If only they could understand. It is for them that the blood and water flowed from my heart as from a fountain overflowing with mercy. For them I dwell in the tabernacle as the king of mercy. I desire to bestow my graces upon souls but if you want to accept them, you at least come to me as often as possible and take these graces they do not want to accept. In this way, you will console my heart. Souls who spread the honor of my mercy, I shield through their entire lives. That the hour of death, I will not be a judge for them, but the merciful Savior. At that last hour, the soul has nothing to do except my mercy. Happy is the soul that during its lifetime immersed itself in the fountain of mercy because justice will have no hold over it. Daughter, when you go to confession for the fountain of my mercy, the blood and water which came forth from my heart always flows down onto your soul and heals it. Immerse yourself entirely in my mercy with great trust so that I may pour the bounty of my grace upon your soul. When you approach the confessional, know this, that I myself am waiting for you. I am only hidden by the priest, but I myself act in your soul. Here, the misery of the soul meets the God of mercy. 
infinitely merciful and God is infinitely just. And there is no contradiction between God's mercy and God's justice because both of those emanate from the infinite perfections of God. Those who will not seek the mercy of God in this life are going to have to face God's justice in the life to come. That is not the right Archbishop Holman J. Shee, the great Catholic preacher of the last century, used to say, no matter which one of a thousand roads you choose to take in life, at the end of that road, you're going to see one of two faces. Either you will see the beautiful face of Jesus Christ, or you will see the horrific face of Satan, and one or the other will say, mine. Often in preaching, I find that one good story is worth a hundred points of God. A few years ago, about this time, the news and entertainment media was all a buzz, all fixated on the story of the life and death of a notorious woman. Her name was Anna Nicole Smith. And in case you don't know, Anna Nicole Smith was this gorgeous, vivacious blonde, reminiscent of Madeline Monroe, who died of a drug overdose at the age of 39. Now, Anna Nicole Smith started out as a dancer in the Texas men's club, and she caught the eye of an elderly Texas oil tycoon by the name of J. Howard Marshall. Now, J. Howard Marshall was not just a multi-millionaire, he was a billionaire. Anna Nicole was the kind of woman who knew exactly how to get what she wanted from men. She married J. Howard Marshall when he was 89 years old. And even at that time, he was confined to a wheelchair. He didn't live much longer after that. That's exactly what she was counting on. So she inherited a vast part of his oil fortune, $474 million. And $474 million made Anna Nicole Smith one of the richest women in the world. If everything was a woman to make the American dream come true, it was Anna Nicole. Think about this. She had it all. She had all the things that the world tells women, especially young women, they ought to live and die for. She had all that money. She had all the beauty in her prime. She was one of the most beautiful women in the country. At one point, she was one of the most photographed women in the world. All the time, she had men at her beck and call buying her attention and her affections, and they fought over her. She was always promiscuous, always involved with a number of guys at the same time, with never a single one she was faithful to. She had all the fame, all the glamour, her picture was in every celebrity magazine and tabloid across the U.S. She had her own reality TV show on cable for a time. She made the most of every moment she spent in the limelight. But in spite of all, come to find out, she was never at peace. She was never satisfied with what she had. There was always something missing. There was always something wrong in her life. Her life became a never-ending search for pleasure, habitual partying, sex, and drugs. Eventually, the drug became her downfall. 
Now, after the cult had a son, a teenage boy named Daniel, finally the boy who got involved with drugs from the influence of his own mother. And Daniel died suddenly of a drug overdose at the age of 16. Finally, Anne Nicole fell victim to her own addiction. She died of a massive overdose of prescription drugs. The results of the autopsy showed she had nine powerful prescription drugs in her system when she died. When she died, she was on medication for, among other things, anxiety, insomnia, and depression. When she died, it set off a national media feeding frenzy. They aired the videos of the last interviews that she had done, and they showed that Anna Nicole Smith was a tortured soul. A terribly, terribly unhappy woman, a woman who did not have peace. Now believe me, I take no pleasure, no satisfaction in anybody's misfortune or downfall, and neither should you. And I pass no judgment on her. I say, may God have mercy on her soul. But as far as the media is concerned, the public, paparazzi, and American pop culture, she is already forgotten. That's the way of the world, right? Out of sight, out of mind. These kind of people got their 15 minutes of fame, then it's all over, then comes judgment, then comes eternity. This is the story this old as life itself. You see, all her beauty, all her glamour, the fame and the fortune and the sex and the drugs could not save her. They could not bring her the happiness she was searching for here on earth. And all the pleasure that she enjoyed in life did not last, it did not satisfy, and it did not bring peace. You see, here's an important point. Pleasure and happiness are not synonymous. They are not the same. Happiness, we say, is a state of being, but pleasure, worldly pleasure, is fleeting. That is to say, it can't last and it can't bring true joy, and it can't bring true peace because, precisely because, it does not fulfill the purpose for which we have been created. Union with God, eternal life in Christ, God's heavenly kingdom, and in that perfect joy and peace out of the intimate vision. See, the point is this. The hedonist lifestyle that drives and dominates everything in this country today life that is spent in pursuit of pleasure, vain pleasure, pleasure for its own sake, pleasure as an end in itself sooner or later, one way or the other, always leads to ruin, self-destruction. Because only God can give the kind of true, lasting peace and joy and happiness all of us are searching for. A few months ago, I met a man named Zachary King, and I listened to his dramatic conversion story. Zachary King is a former Satanist. He was a devil worshiper, a former satanic high priest. He was talking about his own experience as a Satanist. 
dramatic conversion experience because in a dream he saw a vision of our Blessed Mother, which radically changed his life forever. Zachary King was talking about the people who with him in the practice of the occult and the worship of the devil. And he said that for a time, they seem to have it all, right? They have all the power, all the pleasure, all the prestige. They've got all the money and the sex, the drugs they could ever want. But in the end, they are left empty. And so often, they self-destruct. Again, only God can give the kind of true, lasting peace and joy and happiness all of us are searching for. If there would just be some way I could get this message across to our young people, I could save many of them an entire lifetime of heartache. Remember Sin cannot bring peace. On the contrary, sin is the ultimate source of all human unhappiness and conflict, pain, suffering, misery, and death. It is all traceable in one way or another from the beginning to the end, from Adam and Eve to the present moment, to sin. And in order to have true peace and freedom, peace of soul that is, we are going to be free of it. Peace, we say, is the gift of God and is lost through sin, mortal sin. I quoted you, our Lord's words of St. Faustina, the son of the man the mission. Our Lord said, daughter, know this, once and for all, there's only one thing that drives me out of a soul, and that is mortal sin. That alone. Unfortunately, there are many parishes around this country where people have not even heard the term mortal sin in more than 40 years. Sin disrupts the order of God's creation. My brothers and sisters, the spiritual life is a constant, lifelong, daily struggle. Within every human soul, there is the battle that goes on constantly, the constant battle between good and evil, light and darkness, virtue and vice. All of us feel the attractive power of sin and operative in our lives. Jesus said, the spirit is within the flesh of each. And I'll tell you what, I've been saying this for years. Remember that. The toughest opponent you will ever have to overcome in the spiritual battle is the one you see in the mirror every morning. Hmm? Watch out for that one. Hmm? Without the grace of God, without the divine assistance, that guy, that gal is more dangerous to you than ISIS and Al Qaeda and the Taliban. Boko Haram and all the terrorists go together. St. Philip Neri used to get up in the morning and take his morning offering and say, Lord, beware of Philip. Watch out for Philip today. He could betray you. You know, it's so very easy for us to deceive ourselves. Sin will not bring you peace. Don't kid yourself. You can have a superficial external kind of peace. You can have a false sense of security. You can dull and deaden your own conscience of habitual sin, but you will never have true, lasting peace. Now, you can try to find your fulfillment in sinful relationships and sinful lifestyles. 
adopt the playboy mentality or the playgirl mentality. You can surrender your body, which God intends to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, to the pagan mores of the sexual revolution, the Hollywood crowd, the subculture of pornography, fornication, adultery, homosexual activity, sodomy, self-abuse, degradation. You can have the kind of false peace somebody like you, Hefner, has got walking around in his bathrobe for the last 60 years. But you will not have true peace. We'll all catch up with you in the end. Poor, fallen human nature remains. The internal, addictive, compulsive dynamics of sin will be at work in your life. Within every human soul, there truly is a dark side. Star Wars crowd got that part right. Mm -hmm. Within every human soul, there is a dark side. That dark side, up to itself, unchecked by grace and virtue, will conquer. And when it does, the human person can be reduced to the level of an animal, sometimes even a monster. For example, surrender to lust, impurity, involved, and in action leads to sexual addiction, obsession, and finally, perversion. And that is why pornography has now become, spiritually speaking, America's most deadly addiction, Satan's most deadly weapon. I call pornography the methamphetamine in the soul. Devil's most deadly poison. I have a priest friend, Ken Boyer, working in the diocesan marriage tribunal, and he came home from work at the end of an especially exasperating day, the tribunal depressed. And over supper, he was telling us about his day, and I remember him saying, You would not believe how many marriages are being broken up by addiction to internet pornography. It has become a pandemic. And know what? That should make sense to you. Because when a man gets hooked on porn, eventually, gradually, he will often lose interest in his own life. And will see for other ways to gratify himself. You see, his wife can't compete with those women in the video. Those women in the videos are not for real. Those women are always beautiful. Those women never get sick. Those women don't get old. Those women don't argue. Those women don't need money. Those women are always available to him 24-7. Always to gratify these lustful desires. It is an insidious form of adultery. It is truly the poison of the soul. Greed, avarice, leaves the soul always wanting more, more, more. The greedy person is never satisfied. 
Enough is never enough, precisely because material goods cannot satisfy the deepest longings of the human spirit. The alcoholic is never satiated. He's got a battle of the addiction. For the alcoholic, there's the old saying, one drink is too many, a thousand are not enough. The drug abuser gets hooked, and the high always bears home, there's got to be more and more, bigger doses, more potent junk to get the same kind of high. The end is addiction. Destruction of the person in mind and body, and very often the ruin of the people who are closest to the people that he loves. Jesus said, those who live in sin become the slaves of sin. This is the bondage of human will, the surrender of soul to vice. Archbishop Paul J. She used to say, many people try to deceive themselves by claiming they are following their own consciences, when what they are really following are their own sinful desires, their own lustful passions. Friends, you recognize the fact that all of us have a grave moral obligation to form and inform our consciences in accordance with God's definitive revelation of humanity, God's eternal moral law, the, the teaching of the church. The Apostle St. Peter said, Live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover for vice. So, we can say there are two kinds of peace. The false peace people make for themselves through surrender to vice, compromise with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the true, lasting peace that is the gift of God. True peace is a gift of God, and it is lost through sin. Peace, we say, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, and it's the only kind that lasts. Here's the message. You can have that kind of peace. You can have interior peace, peace of soul, even when there is great turmoil going on all around you in your life, as long as you are at peace with God. As long as you keep your soul in state of grace. You can have that kind of peace, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how big or how bad or how many of your sins have been, no matter how many years you have been away from the sacraments, no matter how dark or hopeless things might seem to be right now, you can have peace in the divine mercy as long as you are willing to repent and turn away from sin. Here's the key point. Sinner 
fallen world in need of redemption, God still would have come in. Jesus Christ would have come into this world to die for you, for you alone. That is the infinite value of a single soul to save all mankind. God offers the gift of his mercy. We have come to cooperate with that grace. Now, whenever we talk about the mercy of God, I think it's also important to talk about two really, really bad responses to it. The worst responses to the mercy of God. Two opposite extremes. Sins against the virtue of hope. The first, the most rampant today, is presumption. Presumption. The idea that God is so loving and so merciful that it doesn't really matter what I do. It doesn't really matter what I believe or how I live or how I behave. It's the idea, well, God is so loving and understanding that God knows that the good things that I do outweigh the bad things and God is going to focus on the good things that I do. God would never really punish me. God would never really let me go to hell. So, I can commit as many sins as I want to. I don't have to repent. I don't have to change my ways. I'm going to heaven anyway. There's the big lie. The devil's trap. One time, uh, a man went to Padre Pio, St. Pio Pietrocino, and he told Padre Pio that he wasn't going to confession anymore because he didn't believe in hell anymore. Padre Pio looked at him and glared at him with those piercing eyes that he had. And he said to him, you will believe it when you get there. <laughs> now, the other sin against the virtue of hope, the other opposite extreme, is despair. The idea that my sins are too big and too bad and too many for God to forgive. It is that seductive little voice in your head that tries to tell you God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really care about you. God is not going to forgive you. You're too bad for that. There's no turning back now for you. You've gone too far. Why don't you just give it up? No use. It's too late for you. There's no hope for you. No hope for you. No hope for you. The devil's always trying to drag us down into despair. I've heard despair called the capital city of hell. Uh, listen to the words of Archbishop Fulton Sheen from his book entitled Peace of Soul. Quote The figure upon the cross is not a KGB agent or a Gestapo inquisitor. But a divine physician. Only as we bring our wounds to him in order that he may heal them. If our sins be as scarlet, they shall be washed white as snow. If they be as white as crimson, they shall be made white as wool. Was it not he who told us, I save you? There shall be more joy in heaven over one repentant sinner than over ninety-nine just. In the story of the prodigal son, did he not describe the father saying, 
Let us eat and make merry, because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again, was lost and is found. Why is there more joy in heaven for the repentant sinner than for the righteous? Because God's attitude is not judgment, but love. End quote. God's attitude is not judgment, but love. Now, I have known many good Christians who have got the idea somehow that God is kind of like the divine traffic cop out there waiting to catch you in the end. Like God is uh, the divine state trooper hiding on the other side of the hill with a little radar gun and waiting to catch you, breaking the law, so we can pounce on you and say, Gotcha! How am I gotcha? Now you're in mortal sin. Now you're going to hell. Well, that's nonsense. That's not God's will for you. That's not God's will for anyone. Now, make no mistake. Nothing has changed. Hmm? If you die unrepentant and you die in a state of mortal sin, you will go to hell. Hell is real. Hell is forever. And in fact, no figure of the Bible spoke as much or as often about the reality of hell as did our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. So, you got to take God at his words. Don't mess with God. Don't play fast and lose with the salvation of your soul. You could lose it. That's not God's will for anybody. God appears that loving and merciful father of the gospel waited a little time for the prodigal son to come home. When he did, he said, Rejoice with me. This son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. Why did the father say that? Prodigal son wasn't dead. He wasn't physically dead. He was spiritually dead. Dead in mortal sin. And the divine person brought him back to life again. Remember this. With the divine mercy, all the sins you've ever committed, the worst, the most rotten things you've ever said or did or thought can be forgiven, wiped away in a single instant, burned up, purified, purged away in the white hot fiery furnace of Christ's merciful love. And all the temporal punishment for sin remitted and taken away at any time, no matter who you are or where you are or what you are, it is in your power to make a new start, to spiritually wipe this slate clean and start over again new man, a new woman before God. And all you have to do is want, will it, make it happen. Have the humility to surrender yourself to the will of God. Get to confession. Say, Jesus, I trust in you. Listen again to the words of our Lord St. Augustine. Jesus says, Let the greatest sinners place their trust in my mercy. They have the right before others to trust in the abyss of my mercy. My daughter, write about my mercy towards tormented souls. Souls that make an appeal to my mercy delight me. To such souls, I grant even more graces than they ask. I cannot punish even the greatest sinner if he makes an appeal to my compassion. Write, 
Before I am come as a just judge, I first open wide the door of my mercy. He who refuses to pass through the door of my mercy must pass through the door of my justice. The greater the misery of the soul, the greater its flight to my mercy. Urge all souls to trust in the abyss of my mercy, because I want to save them all. On the cross, the fountain of my mercy was opened wide by the land for all souls. No one have I excluded. My secretary, right, that I am more generous towards sinners than for the just. It was for their sake that I came down from heaven. It was for their sake that my blood was spilled. Let them not fear to approach me. They are most in need of my mercy. The mercy of God, often called God's greatest attribute, the mercy of God, deserved by none but available to all, won for us by the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ on the cross. What is the most powerful channel of the divine mercy? What has always been the most powerful channel of God's mercy? It is the sacrament of penance, confession. Confession, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, positively, the best source of peace there is in the whole world, say what you will. Jesus Christ gave us a second of his mercy on that first Easter Sunday evening when he appeared to the apostles in the upper room after his resurrection. And we read about this in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. Now, no doubt, you heard these verses many times before, but I'll ask you here to listen again carefully to try to draw out the deeper meaning. Listen specifically for one word. Listen for the word peace. The words of St. John. On the evening of that first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed upon them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive are forgiven them and whose sins you retain, are retained. Now, our fundamentalist friends, I say, please, please, don't try to tell me our Lord's words in this Gospel mean nothing. The Gospel shows us clearly that our Lord gave His disciples the power to forgive sins in His name. And it also shows us clearly that there is a link an inseparable link, a divine connection between peace, the Holy Spirit, the reception of the Holy Spirit, and the ministry of reconciliation, that is, confession for the forgiveness of sins. You see, our Lord's words in the Gospel presuppose confession. Think about this. Our Lord gave His disciples the power to forgive sins. He did not give them the power to read minds. Think about it. How could the disciples know which sins to forgive and which to retain if nobody would confess?
confess. You see, this has always been, for me at least, like a theological no-brainer. I mean, this is a matter of theological common sense. And here's the beautiful thing. Whenever you confess your sins to the best of your ability and the best of your memory, not holding anything back deliberately, and you're truly sorry for all your sins, and you have got that firm purpose of amendment, which means you're going to try with help God's grace to avoid the same sins in the future. You know, you always need that confession with that confident assurance of God's complete forgiveness. That's something that should fill you with a true, deep sense of inner peace, a sense of relief, and even the joy, the joy that comes with having a clear conscience before God. Friends, I would not trade that for anything in this world. But I'm saying this. Confession will make a new person out of you, spiritually, a new man, a new woman out of you. Because that sacramental confession is a personal meeting, a personal encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. The incomparable power of that 5, 10, 15 minute sacramental meeting with Christ can change hearts and souls and lives forever. I've seen it time and time again over the years. In my years as a spiritual director and confessor, some of the most tortured souls that I've ever known have been women who have had abortions. Time goes on, they get older, and the reality of what they have done sinks in. Ordinarily, nature and conscience will not allow them to forget. And for many women, there can be a living hell. A nightmare of pain and guilt that can go on for many years, even for a lifetime, without the experience of God's mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation. But I have found that for a woman who has had an abortion, a woman making that journey back to God, the journey of repentance, and, and in fact, for anyone. Anyone making that sometimes difficult and painful but ultimately joyful journey back to the Father's house. It will be ordinarily two big challenges. The first challenge is to be able to accept, to truly accept and interiorize the forgiveness, the mercy that God wants to give to truly believe that God really does love them more than they can ever imagine, that God is always ready to forgive when we're ready to repent. But the second, by far, larger challenge is to be able to forgive themselves. My brothers and sisters, no matter what your past life has been like, you've got to be able to forgive yourself God wants you to experience His mercy and forgive yourself. You can't change the past, but it doesn't have to wreck your life. God doesn't want you to live on painful regrets and memories. God is always calling.
comes back, always comes home. And the saints, all of us, have got to be like the Apostle St. Paul. Remember the Apostle St. Paul? Started out a young man, anything but a saint. He was the young Pharisee named Saul, persecutor of Christians. But after his dramatic conversion, because of the prayers of St. Stephen, who he had helped to martyr, St. Paul reflected on it and said, I give no thought to what's behind me, only to what lies ahead. That's the experience of the Christian God. It's always calling us home. Pope John Paul II once said this. Those confessionals scattered about the world where men declare their sins don't speak of the severity of God, they speak of his mercy. All of those who approach the confessional sometimes, after many years, weighed down with mortal sins. In the moment of getting rid of this terrible burden, find at last a long-for relief. They find joy and tranquility of conscience, which outside confession, they will never be able to find anywhere. Let me leave you this again. Our Lord's words to St. Faustine. Jesus says this, My mercy is greater than your sins and those of the entire world. Who can measure the extent of my goodness? For you I descended from heaven and earth. For you I allowed myself to be nailed to the cross. For you I let my sacred heart be pierced with a lance, thus opening wide the source of my mercy for you. Come then with trust to draw races from this fountain. I never reject a contrite heart. Your misery has disappeared in the depths of my mercy. And over me all your troubles and griefs, and I shall heap upon you all the treasures of my grace. Amen.